0: Well, good Tuesday morning, everybody. I am Glenn the Geek in Ocala, Florida.
2: And I am Christy Landwehr in Aurora, Colorado. And you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for this Tuesday, July 21st, and we are episode 2481. This particular episode is brought to you by the Certified Horsemanship Association. Good morning, Horse World. Houston, we have a problem. Ability equals skill plus knowledge. A bad feeling about this.
1: Here's a safety tip for you from the Certified Horsemanship Association.
2: Missed it by that much.
1: How can I change this to make it better the next time?
3: Help you I can.
2: Time for training Tuesday on Horses in the Morning with the Certified Horsemanship Association.
0: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the CHA episode that we hear, do here the third Tuesday of every month. And if you want to hear all the past episodes that we've done, just go to HorsesInTheMorning.com, scroll down in the middle of the page, and you're going to see a CHA banner. Click on that, and it'll bring you to all the past episodes we've done for what seems like hmm, 20 years uh, that we've been doing this. It has been, what, eight years maybe
2: i think it has been seven or eight (laughs) yeah it really has but for me it seems quicker because you know when they do the reviews of you and they say what part do you like the best about your job glenn i say this show
0: oh yay and they say yeah you say that every year
2: (laughs) Ah, i do because that's the best part of my job the rest of it's like and you know eh, you know
0: board stuff eh, well i got to be on with you on a special thing we did
2: Yes, that was super fun. So we're doing a CHA monthly member chat on the third Wednesday of every month. Um, and what we're doing with those is, well, actually, it's the, yeah, it is the third Wednesday. I had to look and see. And it is. Um, and we're doing those to kind of get everyone just to get together and see each other. Sometimes they show their horse pictures or dog pictures or cats. You know, they go out live and do stuff. And we always have a guest on. And Glenn, you were our guest. It was I know. Great. It was fun. And
0: I got I had a couple people reach out after it, actually. So Oh, did you? Yeah, oh, yeah. Good. Very good. So we talked about podcasting. And, uh, you know, we've been doing this a little while. So uh, we talked about that. And and uh, it was fun. It was fun. It was, you know, we've been doing some interviews. Jamie and I got interviewed for the first time together uh, on another show about podcasting. And I'm usually the one that ends up doing those interviews. So it was weird to have Jamie along. And it was it was just fun. So we've been doing a lot. I've been getting interviewed a lot lately because we're coming up on our 25th, fifth 20- twenty. 2,500-episode anniversary here next month on Nurses in the Morning that will have done this for 2,500 episodes, which is rare. Uh, we think it we're only one of five podcasts in the world, that daily podcasts that have lasted this long. So
2: Wow. Yeah. That's an accomplishment.
0: Yeah, That's and thanks awesome. to you for joining us uh, once a month to do this. Now, I saw some pictures <laughs> that are rare this year, and that was of your kids at a fair, now you know most fairs have been canceled across the country, but your kids were. at, well, What kind of fair was it? And tell us about what they were showing.
2: I will. So the Arapaho County Fair. We're in Arapaho County here in Colorado. Can I just they, say that's
0: the neatest name for a county, Arapaho? Well,
2: yeah, because uh, the Arapaho <laughs> Indians. Were I know here, it's right? just a cool so name. Yeah. It's really fun. So the Arapahoe County Fair, um, you know, normally we have the full carnival rides, and you know, you get to have your wonderful funnel, funnel cake, cake and all that. Yes, yeah. well, all that of course was canceled. Uh, right? No funnel cake at all. No, none of that. Ugh. But Colorado State University, which is of course our extension um, university here, our land grant institution, they run the 4-H, and they really pushed and said, you know what? These kiddos have worked so hard preparing their animals because you know you have to buy your animals back in January. You can't be messing around. You know if you're going to have a steer or a hog or whatever, you got to buy them earlier in the year and they said that, you know, we don't want to just do the virtual livestock auction, which they are doing. They are doing that virtually because there's just too many people at once. But they said they could individually come in and do the different shows. So oh, we had yeah. a I mean, show that, on Saturday. Right? Yeah, we had um, poultry yesterday. We had, they're going to do like goats today, sheep tomorrow, pigs on Thursday and cattle on Friday. So they're kind of spacing everyone out. So there's no more than like 150 of us on the fairgrounds at one time. We all have to wear our masks um, unless they were riding their horses, you know, that they being athletic, they didn't have to. But if they were like doing showmanship for poultry with the judge and they're right in front of the judge explaining their bird, they had to wear their mask and the judge wore wore theirs and, and they had hand sanitizing stations everywhere and they kept it really safe. And we were just very, very happy that. They allowed the kids to get together, interact. Was it weird
0: to be around people?
2: No, not really. I mean, does it seem strange because it's been so long? (laughs) Yeah, no. I mean, they had us hang out in our little family units. You know, we couldn't like hang out in one big bunch. Yeah. So you still hung out in your family units. But then we all got together for like the awards part and stood, you know, six feet apart for our family units and got to hear the judge's explanation of how he placed the classes. So what did they show? What did your kids show? What kind of animals? Yeah, so Kyle actually shows rabbits. He's my younger one, but they, regardless of COVID or not, they had to do theirs virtually this year because there's a rabbit disease going around here in Colorado with the wild rabbits. You
0: know what? Uh, I The Pennsylvania Fair is huge, uh, the farm show every year. And I remember years that they couldn't bring in the birds, the chickens or whatever, and rabbits. Those are the two things that there were years that there were diseases that they couldn't bring in. So uh, I, I guess that makes sense.
2: Yeah, and this disease is airborne. So they were worried that if any it's of It's an airborne the, rabbit disease? It is.
0: Well. It is.
2: <laughs> Who knew? Interesting timing, <laughs> yeah. huh? Yeah. So if anybody has any rabbits that they keep outside, let's say, and then one of their rabbits gets it from a wild rabbit, then they bring it to the fair and we're all in one building together and then all the pet rabbits could, you know, have a problem. And is this so like a deadly disease? It's hemorrhagic. Yeah, they actually hemorrhage and die. Ugh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. So, so how do you do a virtual rabbit show? So, basically, they only could do showmanship. So, Kyle had to do his, you know, three to five minute speech that he does on parts of the rabbit and, you know, the health of the rabbit and his breed and its origin. And we videoed it with his rabbit in front of him. He had to, you know, move her parts, flip her over, do all the stuff that they have to do. And then we turned it in. Huh. So, we'll see how that what goes. What do they we judge for? In rabbit showmanship, they are judging on a lot of public speaking skills of the youth. A lot of public speaking uh, skills, a lot okay. about their knowledge, um, what they know, and a lot about how they explain the parts. And then also about how the rabbit is conditioned. Confirmation like making,
0: too? like
2: um, Not in showmanship. Okay. Showmanship is like showmanship in a horse show. It's judged entirely on the exhibitor. So how Kyle prepared his rabbit, like if there's good, um, you know, sheen there, they washed them, they took care of them, how he's dressed, he has to have a nice button up shirt, and nice slacks and rabbits, you don't do jeans, you normally do slacks, you're just really fancy, and all those kinds of things. And then words and halter, which is, you know, of course, for the horses, the confirmation of the horse in rabbits, that would be the rabbit show where they couldn't do that part. Because how can you uh, look up a yeah. rabbit and feel the tone of a rabbit if you can't be there in person? So they had to cancel that part.
0: Huh. And uh, so and and did one of them have chickens, too, or?
2: Yes. So Sean, my older child, he went grand champion senior showman. So that's on him talking about his chicken. And he also went proud mother moment grand champion bird. So his bird also went grand champion of the show. And Glenn, you know why this is so great? Because the judge knew that the bird lived in the house. He actually came up to Sean and he goes, does your bird live in the house instead of in a coop outside? And Sean's like, yes, sir. It lives in the sunroom. He's like, I can tell because there is nothing wrong with this bird. It doesn't have a single feather out of place. It doesn't have anything. So here is a benefit to keeping the bird in the house and having to clean up chicken poop every single day from my sunroom floor. There is now a reason why I have been doing this for the past umpteen years. It's do they finally come to fruition. Does he groom oh, the yes. chickens? Oh, well, yes. Yeah. You've got to wash them. We have to wash chickens on Sunday <laughs> in three different buckets of water. One has soap, do one you has dunk vinegar. Them, or do you actually... Oh, you've got to dunk them uh, and leave their head up. Yeah. Do they it's like the being thingy. washed, chickens? Oh, no, they flap and you get feathers and water all over you and soap and vinegar in your eyeballs. And then you've got to hair dry them with a hair dryer. Makes doing oh, yeah. your
0: pony look easy, huh?
2: Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> then you got to trim their nails. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Yeah, it goes on and on.
0: All right, well, we better get, we have our first guest coming up, but uh, this ties into the CHA conference this year is going to be virtual. Uh, so, uh, and kind of your guests today tie into that, right?
2: Very much so. So our conference is normally uh, face-to-face and it's in October and we were going to be going to Texas A&M and we still will in 2021, but right now um, we are going to be doing our event virtually. It's going to be a one-day event on Friday, October 30th and we're going to be featuring some of our speakers the next few months just to give you a taste of if you get on what you can experience because it's going to be a great day.
0: All right, very good. Well, let's, do you want to get your first one on? I would love that. All right. Why don't you tell us about her and I'll get her queued up here.
2: Absolutely. So Julie Fisher um, lives in Colorado, same state as me, and she's been very active in the Girl Scouts. um, And also she's been on our board of directors as our board secretary. And she's currently our state representative for um, CHA. She is now Dr. Julie Coney Fisher. She just got PhD, which is pretty cool. She has her bachelor's in accounting and management. She has an MBA with a concentrating in accounting, and she's a doctorate of management with a focus on organizational leadership. Pretty cool. Her background includes experience in equal fields, educational fields, grant management, accounting, profit, and nonprofit, finance and analysis, um, and also organizational leadership and disaster.
1: Good morning. This is Julie.
2: Hi, Julie, Christy, and Glenn. How are you? Doing good. How are y'all doing?
0: We're doing Great. We just read how- your credits, and it took about an hour uh, ah! to
2: get it all. She's in. awesome. <laughs> I was just telling Glenn how you just got your PhD. Congratulations, Doctor Julie. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Do you. Are you are you making everybody call you that, Doctor, just for a while?
1: Just my students. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, your your family doesn't have to call you doctor. You're not making forcing them to do it. Just...
1: Well, maybe when the kids are in trouble, it's Doctor Mom. So. <laughs> Good.
0: <laughs> you know, you're going to talk about something today that I don't think in 2,500 episodes we've ever talked about. So I'm I'm fascinated to hear about it.
2: So okay, no great. stress and no pressure, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. She's a doctor. She
0: can handle it.
2: (laughs) That's right. No problem. So, Julie, before we jump in, tell us a little bit more about your horsey background, because you have quite an avid horse background as well.
1: Um, I do. I actually started riding when I was really young in Texas through the CHA program as a kid at Girl Scout camps, um, and then became in the industry as an instructor, a director, an outfitter, a packer. Worked at Philmont Boy Scout Ranch, worked at several Girl Scout camps, at some city programs, boarding schools, and at the Girl Scout camp up here. We've been up here for now 14 years. Um, And on top of that, I also now teach finance and risk management for an equine business program up in the University of Guelph in Canada.
2: And explain where up here is to the people that don't know where you are exactly.
1: So, I live at Meadow Mountain Ranch Girl Scout Camp in Allen Park, Colorado. We border Rocky Mountain National Park, the Wall Basin, so we're just south of Estes Park. We're at about 8,900 feet elevation. I started here in 06 at the camp as the equine director, and then I became the statewide equine director for the Girl Scout Council um, until the program ended in 2013 due to budget cuts, and we still stay here. We have our own personal horses, and we're hoping, now that we have a new CEO, we're kind of hoping maybe we can bring the horses back sometime. We used to do pack trips and drop camps into Wall Basin for Girl Scouts. Um, I used to work for local liveries as well, and we used to take outfitters in and fly fishermen. Um, And then the girls would also hike over the Divide, Boulder Grand Pass Divide, into Grand Lake. So we're basically directly east of Grand Lake, Granby area, if you were hiking um, and we're the closest to the Continental Divide.
0: i got. I got to interrupt like... here. Your Girl Scout <laughs> troops have the most beautiful place in the world to be hanging out. <laughs> Estes Park is one of those yeah, places really that love. my wife and I just love. We couldn't go there enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're pretty fond of it. I think we'll stay here a long time. Now, the kids we're... like it, and everyone loves the 360 view of the mountains. A
0: lot of other—I wanted to ask you this before we get into grant writing. Uh, so a lot of other places, especially national parks, have seen just a ton of tourists that they wouldn't normally see. Has that been happening in the, in the parks up there in the mountains as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I would say especially once they opened us up from COVID, the town is just exhausted and, like, saturated with tourists and people coming through. Um, I think it's great people are being more aware of the outdoors and wanting to appreciate their parks more, which is huge. Um, a lot of the time they really flourish when it's a free day coming into the park. That's when we see like it looks like a you know, evacuation.
0: I mean it was busy anyway on a normal summer.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, on a normal day. <laughs> we get I mean, a free day and we just don't go into town.
0: <laughs> and yeah, because Estes Park, there was no social distancing. It was so packed in that place. Mm-hmm. In the in yep. busy days, it's just crazy. Uh Well, you do live in a beautiful place. I'm envious. All right, Christy. Sorry.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, you're good. And Julie, what I like is um, you become her friend on Facebook. And every day, it's like a picture of a moose in the backyard, a picture (laughs) of an elk in the backyard. I'm like, so jealous. I'm like, oh, my gosh. She's sitting on her porch with her coffee watching the moose. What? Awesome. (laughs) Yep. Well, Julie, we are so excited to have you on because I think for people listening, especially those that have their own businesses in the horse industry, you know, horses cost a lot of money to take care of. And especially if we have school horses that we're providing and things like that. And I know a lot of groups out there, there might be a 501c3, so a nonprofit, so they can apply for grants. And I think a lot of people are worried about that journey and what to do. So why do you think grant writing is an important skill for nonprofits and small businesses?
1: Well, um. I like to put it as as much work as you invest into a horse. When you get a horse and you train them, you want to have that that great product that you're proud of that will get you revenue coming in. A grant application is pretty much the same thing. This is something that can take you weeks or months to do. Um, grantors want to see something that reflects your organization at a very high professional level. A, looks at your long-term planning goals, and they're clearly stated, including your budgeting. So you need to have your financials in there, professional looking, have an understanding on how to explain them, and show where you need the resources and what your goal is. Um, most grants you're looking at would be long-term goals. So you're, you're looking at a project that's based on your vision and your mission of your organization. So you really want to reflect that. You wouldn't use grants for short-term or anything. And when you've put that much time into it, you don't want it to... This kind of be 50-50 quality. You want it to get you the result you're looking for. So if it's poor quality, you're not going to have a chance. You can't just do like a generic one-fits-all situation. For grant applications, you really need to make it professional. And it may be several pages, 50-60 pages. You may have graphs, diagrams, engineering plans. So you're investing a lot of time, months into this, and hoping to get this so you can make your dream come true. The skill is reaching your grantor and getting them to see your vision by telling the story in your grant application. So it's definitely a skill that managers should look into. There are resources out there on how to improve your skills at writing. You can, people volunteer sometimes to help nonprofits. You can hire someone. But I think if you invested in yourself to learn how to do that yourself, you're going to save one money. Getting it ready. And two, you have something to be proud of, and then you see your project become reality by investing that time in it. You're not going to waste time on a horse and get a bad product because then it's a waste of money. So, this is kind of the same concept. It can be a waste of money and time if you don't do it right.
2: You know what else it reminds me of, Julie? It reminds me of a resume. You know, when you're applying for a job, you could just do a resume that's a one-stop shop, but the resume that's going to probably get you the job is geared directly towards the position you're applying for with a cover letter that goes directly towards the position you're applying for. So when you write a grant, it sounds like you're saying it's the same idea. Mm
1: -hmm. It is. You're selling yourself and your resume. In a grant application, you're selling your vision and your organization, in hopes that someone will bite and reward you by giving you the funding that you need.
2: So why are they important for long-term goals, both grants and fundraising? Why are they both important?
1: So your long-term goals impact your financials, and they can impact it in a negative way. Long-term debt is basically what you want to try and avoid. Long-term goals are things that you want your organization to stand for. So once again, the vision and mission, short-term goals are more your operating stuff, your employees, your daily tasks, things that your business does every day in a regular basis. Long-term goals are those huge visions that you see you're growing to, growth, expansion, um, innovative Projects you may want to bring in. It's survival of the business to continue to grow and flourish. So you don't want to stay stagnant. Grants and fundraising can support those long-term goals so that any revenue or regular income you bring in can cover your operating. So you don't run short there because without finances, you have no business. by using grants and fundraising to fund those long-term ones, you're reducing how much long-term debt you may have on your financial statements, which could make it negative-looking for future resources in grants. If you carry a lot of debt, that doesn't really paint a positive financial picture, but you got to remember that grants are not a, a recurring fund sometimes it's very rare that you get one that can renew every year most you have to reapply every year and you may not have that so you don't want to put grants and fundraising into your everyday expenses and operating costs because you could short yourself there
0: okay so i have a question um let's back up a little bit how do i what kind of horse businesses can get a grant and how do you find out about them
1: A lot of time, like nonprofits and small businesses can get grants. There are small business grants out there through your SBA and commerce. So a lot of it is networking. Um, Start with the SBA, your small business associations, sometimes government. Um, There's a lot of education grants out there for small business, especially ones that teach. Um, you, You don't have to be a school to get an education grant in the equine. Think and kind of think outside of the box. Nonprofits... You know, also education, environment, community development. Um, if you're reaching out to a specific focus group, so special needs, therapeutic, um, you can reach out to the health industry as well, partner with physical therapists. There are all these different avenues. A lot of it starts with looking in your own community. So like up here in Estes, we do have a few organizations like our thrift store that award out hundreds of thousands of dollars in grants to local Areas. So the school just last year got about 140 thousand in grants for programs at our school, and we applied to the thrift store, other businesses for profit, Wait a minute! Wait a minute!
0: The thrift start. store gives out that but mu- they make that much money at the thrift store, they can give out that much in grants.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Wow! They have some good.
1: Yeah, they're the selling some affair. expensive the clothing. The at the thrift yeah. store. People in the mountains <laughs> yeah, that's another, pay a lot. Yeah, that's another topic is beneficiaries. Um, can donate and then you can turn around and put that back into your community. We got a grant from the Stanley Hotel for our band. Um, equine up here, if you if you look to like tax stores, look to people that have a passion for horses but may not be in it and are successful business wise. A lot of the times it's starting out by asking. Others it's just researching their websites that can give you lists put in certain searches through the government on finding grants that might be in your, just like if you were looking for grants and scholarships for college. It's kind of like the same process. You just got to do a lot of commitment and time and research, and they're out there. There's a lot of money out there, but it's committing the time to finding them, talking to people, word of mouth, um, and then applying, the grant writing process.
0: And this is something you really have to think about way ahead of time, right? Because you're applying ahead of time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this isn't something where you think, oh, this grant's due in two weeks. I'm just going to whip this out real fast because mm. you're probably not. Um, it's it's an investment because you really need to. Grants can be very specific, and if you don't clearly state what your project is, how it's going to benefit the purpose of this grant, so if it's a community grant, you need to state how your project benefits your community or the special focus group, um, what value it brings. So grants are very more of building up and benefiting society around you as opposed to just giving you a check to pay for something. Um, And that takes a lot of skill in getting that message clearly written professionally and getting them to see that vision and say, okay, why should we give our money to you? What is your project going to bring back to our community?
0: Well, Well, that's why I've never done it. It requires forethought.
1: Um. Ah, <laughs> it a lot of, <laughs> can't just be spontaneous, Glenn. Uh, just do that. I'm out. Sorry. <laughs> so Julie, you, can you can get a p- team. It can be a team effort. Um, I would so have like to. When we do have the grants, <laughs> I, I focus on the financial part. The teachers give me their ideas. They work on kind of like their narrative. Um, We get feedback from, you know, the admin and staff, and and you can have people review it, edit it. There are, of course, editing programs out there to help you write more scholarly in a more scholarly fashion and professional. So there are a lot of resources to help you. One person can do it if you kind of know, you know, what's available to you. There's still a lot of free resources to make it a lot easier and not so much of a headache. (laughs) Mm
2: Julie, could you give us a specific example of a grant that either you applied for or the Girl Scouts did or somebody and how it all went through?
1: Sure. Um, so right now, the Girl Scouts, of course, work with United Way, but one we did at the school, which we're really proud of, is we applied for a grant through the state of Colorado to do composting. And what we what the program is, is it's with our environmental club, we have Composters that recycle plastic and everything. And the grant that we just got allowed us to buy a filament maker so we can take the water bottles, plastics from the school and make it into filament, which then can be used in 3D printers. Um, what That's we started cool. with is uh, our environmental club started a couple of years ago with the recycling program, and we connected with the county through the zero waste, and they're huge on schools promoting recycling and all. And then that went a step closer with the Larimer County and worked on getting the composters to be brought in. So it's showing, teaching the kids about composting, um, conserving the environment, reducing waste. Um, The Girl Scouts also do this with zero waste through Boulder County, but there wasn't a grant, they just kind of helped support you, this sustainability department. Um, and then that led to some research where the environmental club the science teacher came to me and said, Hey, there's a way where we could take this plastic and then set we can sell it, which brings the revenue back to the school, or we have two three D printers in the school that our science um, our other science teacher got through the thrift store grant to make stuff for her science class um, and teach them about, you know, building things in three D for physics and those. Um And partnering off that program, we were able to write a grant through the state of Colorado um, requesting a machine to where we could take our recycled plastics, put it back into our program for education by making it into a filament. And then that filament is used by our business when they make stuff in 3D, by our science department when they make stuff in 3D. It's a match grant. So. Most match grants can be good or bad as long as you can make sure you can raise that 5, 10, 15, 20%. So this one's a match grant. Um, it was almost $15,000, and we'll match five grand. And the way we hope to do that in the next three to five years is by, one, selling the filament to other places that have 3D printers and selling the recycled plastic, and then keeping some for our own program, which would cut our costs on that.
2: That is a great idea. So I want to share one too. Um, certified horsemanship association applied with a Latino family foundation to produce our level one manual in Spanish and they paid for everything. They paid for it to be translated. They paid for it to be printed and are laid out, I should say, and they paid for the printing of them. How did you so find out
0: about that organization? Did you specifically go look?
2: No, this was actually one of our members told us about okay. it. So like Julie said, you know, the whole networking thing now, is very yeah. useful. Yeah. yeah. It is very useful.
0: But that know, was a good Because that's kind of obscure for uh, you know, an average person to go find.
2: Yes. Yeah. No, that was definitely a networking one. And then I worked for the Urban Farm in Denver uh, a while back. And we have the Colorado Lottery. And the Colorado Lottery actually funds the Colorado Great Outdoors for some of their programming. So we applied when I worked for them through the Colorado Lottery to get an indoor arena. And they paid for our entire indoor arena at the Urban Farm. Wow.
1: And you can yeah. just put on alerts. I found out about the state of Colorado's environmental grant um, by being put on their monthly notice. So when a new grant pops up, they send you a notice. And you read through it, and if you think you qualify, you you know inquire more about it. And that kind of takes that to where it's constantly working in the background. And, and that's through, like, your city, county, and state all have a grant resource. Well, they'll send you notices of what's coming down the pipeline, what new grants are becoming available again. We get a grant up here at the Girl Scouts every couple of years for forest mitigation for the beetle kill, um, and we get it through the county. And we'll get the notice, and we'll apply as a nonprofit, and they basically bring, like, the Lions Fire Department um, or other happy forestry organizations to come up here, and the grant pays for their time, their materials, to help us clear-cut dead trees and and control our, our forest to keep making sure that it's healthy and we're not overgrown and we're not a fire hazard.
2: That's a good one too. So grants are only. Can one I go type back to your raising, scouts though. get to do the coolest stuff? Uh, you ah, know. they do. <laughs> <laughs> Just,
0: you know the ones down here in Florida. They you, 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 you go out and see some alligators, but we don't have all that cool mountain stuff to do.
2: I think, if, especially with Boy Scouts too, right? If you're going to be an Eagle Scout, this is the place. To yeah, do it, exactly. Right? There's a lot, a lot to do. So, oh, Julia, I know.
1: That, yeah. Sorry. Go. Go ahead.
2: I was just going to say, grant writing is just one form of fundraising. Let's jump into kind of fundraising as a whole. What are some innovative tools when um, us in the horse industry are considering fundraising?
1: Um, Fundraising has, I would say, taken a whole new direction lately. Um, We talk about it a lot in my college course because you want to be innovative thinking. You want to think outside of the box. It's not typical where you go and you send out pamphlets and you call people, cold calling or whatever, and you you beg for donations and stuff. Um, nonprofits are are needing to get away from that dependence feeling, where they're de- they feel like, oh, well, we're always depending, calling the same people. Can you donate this month? Can you donate this month? Um, there are several tools out there now with fundraising that are being researched, and small businesses can do the same thing: um, crowdfunding where you, it's kind of like what you would do in the past where you call a bunch of people, but you kind of get a vision and a a following together, whether it's, you know, with the GoFundMe pages that you see, Um, Facebook has them. You can set them up for goals. We raised money selling um, survival bracelets to put in a zip line here, a memorial zip line through one of the troops for a Girl Scout that passed away from epilepsy. Um, And they kind of use that GoFundMe, that crowdfunding tool. It took years. I mean, we're talking seven, eight years. So it's a long-term one, um, but it keeps kind of like that revenue coming in if you have someone to give back. So our kind of our kind of trademark up here are survival bracelets. When people come to MMR, they can learn to make them. Um, they can buy them off the high adventure troop. Um, but like I say, that's long-term. You're thinking eight, ten years before you may reach your goal. Um, another one is angel investors is a new thing coming out. Um, finding people like I say that have a passion but aren't in your industry, but have the money to financially support you. Um, there are people out there in the big corporations that have a passion, you know, for horses, but they not be may not own horses, or they might may not be in the horse industry, or like you said, the Latino found foundation, um, where they are some component of their business that could really benefit yours. So they invest in you either as a startup or if you're wanting to expand and grow into something bigger. Another one is um, great for startups as well is bootstrapping where you use most of your resources and you reach out for volunteers, donors, try and stay away from loans. You know, when you're trying to fundraise, those are are quick resources, but they come with a huge price. You're paying them off, so your revenue is going back in at a high interest rate. Um, those are just three examples that have become popular over the years recently. Um, but thinking outside the box, thinking more like a business and finding people that are for profit that can provide you with some revenue or give you a resource or tool partnering up with marketing companies. Um, what, like what CHA does, partnering up with all the other horse affiliations, um, partnering up with a school. They can help promote your writing and lessons utilizing, um, resources out there, word of mouth. but So it's just a couple of examples of fundraising that's different than the old-fashioned, you know, put out a piece of paper or send out a note and Christ, a letter.
0: Christy, I know we're a little bit on time, but I wanted to ask, what has COVID done to this kind of Reader's Digest? Has it has it affected all of this? Is it going to affect all of this one way or the other?
1: Um, I think right now COVID, like the money is still out there. In a lot of these corporations, they're secure because of their finances. Um, even though you see the stock market going up and down, these big corporations are still protected. There's still money coming in. We've seen it with Girl Scouts. where We struggle a little bit with mainly membership, but the donors are still out there. You may see a reduction in your immediate members. Like they may not be able to pay the dues like they used to, and they may fall back a little bit. Lessons may go down. You may not get the little revenue, but the big fundraising is still out there. It's not completely gone away. And there's definitely uh, urgency for it because larger corporations right now are starting to become empathetic and starting to look and see the small businesses struggling. And, kind of how do we keep our economy alive. So I think we're gonna see uh, a rotation here where those larger corporations that share visions with the smaller ones are gonna start helping and supporting. We see it a lot with our food bank up here. We deliver lunches for the schools twice a week. um, And people are donating money to the school like T-Mobile to help us keep those lunches going when we can't, we no longer have the finances coming in. through, like, the, the parents paying for the lunches and stuff. So I think that's a trend we're going to start seeing as this struggles longer because they don't want to see the smaller businesses disappear. They don't want to see the nonprofits go away. Those are, those are hearts of our community as opposed to just being, like, a corporate business or, you, yeah, you kind of know what I mean. They, there's passion and there's vision in these organizations, and no one's going to want to see them suffer too long.
2: Yes, I agree with that. And, you know, down here we have Raytheon has been donating to the lunches and Lockheed Marietta. I mean, it's been it's been awesome um, for the lunch program. So so I think you're right. They don't want to see the passion in the heart. And I love how you said that about the nonprofits. They are truly the passion in the heart. We um, do
1: the same with the animal rescues, too. People are reaching yes. out to make sure those animals are taken care of because they provide a service. They provide something positive. So.
0: And actually, the animal rescues have been doing very well. I mean, there have been more. They've donated or they've adopted out so many dogs. Some of these rescues with dogs, they don't have any. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, That
2: wasn't what we expected four months ago.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's
2: kind of a weird turn that took yeah. place. I know another thing for fundraising too that um, mm-hmm. our members started to do when they were a little bit worried, especially our, you know, we're 40% camps, right? And some of the camps couldn't do overnight in their different areas and they were like oh, I don't know if we're going to make it just with day rides and they wanted to keep the horses fed. So they did online silent auctions. Oh my goodness. Now you can spread this auction right. all around the country and have either the donor of the item pay for the shipping to give it to the recipient or the recipient can pay for the shipping and they have made tens of thousands of dollars, not hundreds of dollars. They've made I mean one of our barns made forty five thousand dollars on their silent auction. Whoa. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And, and that would have been
0: forty five hundred in cool. person. Uh,
1: it would have yeah, been yeah. yes. That online the internet is it makes us global for our fundraising now. That's a good point. I've seen people do adopt a horse where you can donate to a specific horse, kind of like adopt an animal, and that money goes to help cover their hay and feed. Um, yeah, by, by being able to put your fundraising on global, you're on online. You're reaching more than just your community. You're reaching your state. You're reaching a whole big industry. That's amazing. That's awesome.
2: So, Julie, how can a business reduce their liability with grants and fundraising?
1: Well, most of your like most revenue you have coming in for a big profit for big projects, you want to average about 20% to be grants and fundraising, which most big projects should only be about 20% of your focus financially because you don't want to exhaust your expenses. Grants and fundraising are one of those to where you don't have to pay it back. There's no interest. Um, It may take a little bit longer for you to reach your goal, but in the long term, it's going to make your financials look a lot healthier. Um, If you constantly take out loans to build that barn or you take out a loan to get a a new truck or that tractor part or the arena, eventually your financials, when you do finally need an investor or you need to find some revenue and you're capped out, is going to make your financial statements in your organization in a very negative, bad situation, unhealthy. Um, You don't want to have a lot of long-term debt. Short-term debt can be easier to pay off, like that one-to-three loan or something, but you're talking like mortgages and stuff, if you're wanting to build a new barn, I would say long-term debt is the last thing you want to try and do. Um, You really want to try and look for resources that you don't have to pay back. It'll take longer, but in the long run, your organization will be healthier financially. You'll be able to keep emergency funds if you have a disaster. You'll be more appealing, actually, for grants because your financials are and budgets are submitted. So they want to see where you're already spending your money and figure out who's wise with their money. If it doesn't look like you're well-organized financially or you just borrow, 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 then they're going to wonder how you're going to handle their money that they're giving you. Um, it paints a really good picture, your credit, everything really comes to play when you're looking at grants and fundraising and trying to get people to donate to you.
2: Julie, this has been so good. Um, And I wish we could talk for another hour because I have so many more (laughs) things to chat with you about and I want more examples, but we've got to probably wrap it up. So how can people find you? What is the best way if they're really intrigued by this and they want more information and just want to pick your brain? How is the best way to reach you?
1: Probably the easiest way is through the CHA instructor website. Um, Perfect. You can find me in there. That'd probably be the easiest way. My email, my phone number, um, and everyone already has access to it if they're already in there. So that's probably the easiest way.
2: Yeah, and that's for everybody listening. You just go to CHA.horse. And when you get on there, you'll see where it says find one of our professionals. Just click on there, type in Julie Fisher, and she will pop up. So, Julie, thanks so much. Is there anything you want to leave us with today before you go? One kind of final tip for those out there that are listening.
1: Um, Don't be afraid of grants. (laughs) Yes. They can really be phenomenal and really get some amazing projects in your hands that you may have thought were just a dream. It takes a lot of time and devotion, but it's like, I mean, think about it as investing in a horse that you use in your program. It's worth it in the end. It really, really is. And it can really improve your nonprofit and your small business and take you in innovative directions you never even thought of. And to be innovative when you're thinking about grants and ways to get fundraising, think outside the box. Just remove all the barriers and think as creatively as you can. Cloud thinking where you just throw words out there and there are tools out there to brainstorm. Be innovative and be brave. Very
2: good. Dr. Julie, thank you so much for being on today. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you all so much for having me. Have a good day.
2: Well,
0: that was fascinating. I, we had never talked about that before.
2: Yeah, she's good. And then some of the examples that came up, that was great. And if anybody listening also wants to contact me about them, I was the development director for the urban farm for a year. They actually hired me because of the Rose Community Foundation grant that paid for my salary for a year. And then they could not, like Julie said, some of them are not renewable. So after one year, they couldn't renew it. So then I was still a writing instructor and other things for them, but I couldn't do as much with the fundraising side of it once that grant expired. But you can pick my brain, too. Happy to help. Um, we've done a lot of other grants for CHA that we don't have time to mention on today's show, but happy to help. So just reach out.
0: I know one of our auditors and longtime listeners is, is a professional grant writer. That's what she does. And she nice. does it for the health community. Um, and, you know, I talked to her about it the one day, and it, it's, uh, you know, again, she was correct. You you should get help because it needs to be written a certain way. Um. The people who, who are uh, looking over the grants are are particular about what they're looking for and what should be in it. Yes, so very much so. Yeah, so interesting. Very cool. But now we're going to change gears totally, aren't we?
2: We are. So for those that want to come on our virtual conference, you know, get onto our website, cha.horse, and you can have a whole hour of Julie because she'll be on. And then um, Johann Schleze is also going to be on, and he is a master saddle fitter. He received his initial training in saddle making in Germany. In 1984, he was certified as the youngest master saddler ever in Europe and when asked asked to come to North America from Germany in eighty six to be the official saddler for the World Dressage Championships. Which were held in Toronto. In 1990, together with the Canadian government, Chalais developed the first ever authorized school for saddle makers and saddle fitters. He regularly confers with industry professionals and is a guest speaker at many events, including ours, both in person and virtually. And he also um, just created Saddle Fit for Life, which is their nonprofit which is a global network of equine professionals dedicated to the comfort and protection of the horse when it comes to their saddle fit. Saddle Fit for Life just also happens to be a lifetime business member of ours, so we are so thrilled to have Johan on today. And
0: I know he's been on some other shows in the past, but this we cannot talk about saddle fit enough. It's the one thing that on Facebook you see people ask about that they're confused about because nobody knows for sure, right? You're always concerned. It's, it's one of the areas of concern that you always Hello. have.
2: Hi, Johan. It's Christy and Glenn. How are you?
3: Hi, Christy. Good, good, good. I tried calling that call, the phone number, but somehow it didn't go through.
2: No, this is perfect. We always like to call you. So welcome to the show. We're on oh, live right now.
3: Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: So where are you? You travel all around the world. Where are you right now? Are you at home?
3: Yes. Today, I'm in Toronto, Canada, and um, since COVID, I have enjoyed my home.
2: (laughs) Yes. I think many of us have that are normally on the road. So for those that are listening, could you give us a little bit more background on your um, equine journey and how you became a saddle fitter?
3: Yes. Um, I grew up in Buenos Aires. My dad taught physics and math in Many German schools all over the world, And when I came back to uh, Germany in 1996, um, uh, uh, 69 I'm sorry 69, um, I was fortunate enough to ride many horses and qualify to represent my country, Germany, and three-day venting. And then my passion was always anatomy for horses. And somehow I ended up not as a veterinarian. That's what I wanted to do, but as a saddle maker. And after many years, I qualified and became a master saddler. And at the same time, I rode active through the eventing and I lost my horse, not through a bad accident, but a very, um, problematic issue in the shoulder, we could not detect And not after this horse was long retired and I continued as a master saddler, I noticed or I saw at the University of Utrecht in Holland that horse on the treadmill and they had a rider on that horse as well. And underneath the saddle was injected a fiber optic camera and they're shown how a saddle literally can cripple the horse's shoulder cartilage. And at that moment, it hit me. It hit me so hard because that's exactly how my horse got crippled. So, here's the, the devastating part. I was taught by a top school in Germany to make saddles, and nobody ever taught me anything. And to this day, there's no biomechanics, anatomy, lessons for horse or rider what is taught in saddle making. So, I made it my calling, I made it my lifetime goal. Nobody should ever ever lose their best friend because of not knowing what the saddle can actually do to their horse, to their best friend. So that's how I got into saddle fitting and I created five academies around the world. And um it has been absolutely amazing how many uh experts I have met through the, through the last 40 years. And I, I said to myself, you know, I, I gotta seek the answers and thank God there are so many veterinarians, osteopaths, physiotherapists, trainers, they all want to share because in the end, we all have the common goal. We want the best for the horse. And that's how I became a master saddler and a saddle ergonomist.
2: I had no idea about that story. All these times I see you at our conference and I did not know that story because we never have time. And I'm so glad that there's that passion behind it because when you have passion behind something, boy, does it make you good at what you do. And that's your it's, passion.
3: It's so thrilling. Yes, is my thought because you can help these horses and the customers are so, so helpful because most of the time it's not always a new saddle or stuffing or new saddle pads. Sometimes it's as simple as I love your girth, but the girth is too short. You're sitting on one of the reflex points but makes a horse really jerking back his front leg and he lands toe first. And here we have all kinds of problems just because the stupid girth is too short. Yeah. So, no, many many people don't know what they don't know, and that's how how I said no. This has to stop. This has to stop, and that's why it's so so fascinating. This every horse is different, every rider is different, and you can share the information I collected over the last four forty two years with with people all over the world.
2: Education is key, so. How has this whole COVID-19 pandemic affected your particular company, and how have you adapted your strategy to make all the changes necessary to stay in business during this time?
3: Actually, it has not affected us at all as America Good. Of fact, I started a, a program what uh, I worked on for the last three years, because I said I, I fly around the world two or three times a year. I'm going from continent to continent and I don't see enough people. I can't help enough horses. So with COVID, I was forced to fast track the program I work on it. And I want to bring the past back to the future where uh, I work closer with trainers and closer with experts and we do it over long distance. So we have created a long distance fitting kit. Everybody has these days what we call smartphones. And for free, you can download apps from uh, what what can actually measure your horse. And we have um, a horse, not a horse, but it looks like a horse's back out of little beads. And you suck out the air, and then it becomes rock hard. So what we can do, we can uh, reshape the horse's back in no time in the shop, and then help people to walk them through what problem they may have. And then, if they're looking for used or new saddle or for simple adjustment, so COVID, as I said, really jump-started us, our program, and it gave us the, the well, we had no choice. We couldn't go anywhere. Nobody couldn't go anywhere. But it did give us the chance to to implement that program right away. It's like the old saying, you know, jumping in the cold water and learning yes. to swim. So that's what we did.
2: That is so good. So um, I know that you know there are male and female saddles. I was taught this a long time ago based on the twist, but it's still kind of above my pay grade. So could you explain a little bit more about why that's even an issue and the difference between a male and female saddle and how that all works?
3: Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the biggest problem was always when I was um, giving many, many riding lessons. And when I got a writing lessons, the instructor told me something. I got it, Good. I done it. And when I then taught the same sentence or the same information to my students and more and more back then started to become females versus male, I had the writing lessons from an old cavalry officer. And, um, sometimes I had writing lessons from a female writer, but most of the time it was guys. And when I was a little boy, I grew up, there were. 50-50, 50-50, maybe 60% guys and not as many women. Today, you see 95%, 90% women riding in the English and 75 in the Western world. And when you teach them, you always think, why do they not do what I say? So <laughs> I get on the horse, I show them, I show them what I mean, and they say, well, it's easy for you. You get your leg back. I can't get my leg back. And then when they say it rubs me on the underwear or it hurts my lower back or my hips, my knees, I always thought, you know, these are all a bunch of excuses. And that's- I was so stubborn. I was so stubborn as an instructor and a judge. I was uh, judging many shows in Germany. And I said, why are these women try- trying harder? And that's how ignorant I was. And even though I had a grade six biology and I knew there's a difference between boy and girl, But I had no idea, no idea. There's nine key factors. We just mentioned one is the twist what's the area between your upper and the thigh. But I had no idea. There's nine key factors in the saddle. What's the difference between male and female saddle? And it was actually a Canadian Olympic rider who said to me, you are going to talk to my gynecologist. I said, no, I'm not. I was too afraid. (laughs) So my wife, Sabina, talked to this gynecologist. And he was so interested. Because he had many, many riders with chronic bladder and kidney infection from a saddle. couldn't believe it. From a saddle? Yes, this guy said, from a saddle. So he brought me the pelvises, female and male pelvis, plastic models. And I was floored. Christy, the first thing what I was taught as a saddle maker, doesn't matter if I make a Western saddle or English saddle, in the ground seat or the base of the seat, make the area between your upper and the thigh nice and pointy. And it makes total sense because if a guy sits in the saddle, what's nice and pointy in the crotch. His parts go left and right. No woman likes to ride on 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 a rooftop, on a pointy, sharp point in the front. Sure. So many, many, many people, you know, who sell saddles or make saddles are guys, and when they are sitting in the saddle, that's comfortable then we don't get why you're not sitting upright or why you don't get your <laughs> leg back or why you're not swinging with your, with your pelvis the way you're supposed to. Well, if I would sit on something that pokes me in, in some areas, what is uncomfortable, <laughs> I might not sit up either. So that's how, how I was like really taken back as a master father and I made already many fathers at that stage, over 6,000, just to hear from a medical doctor, how wrong I make saddles oh. for women. I mean, think about it. Think about it. There is not a single Western rider, there is not a single male Western rider who goes to a jean stores and buys female jeans to ride his next reigning class <laughs> or any <laughs> rodeo. I mean, yeah. and that's just cloth. You don't see a single English rider who buys women riding pants and go riding. So we understand that jackets don't fit the same a male upper body than a female upper body. We understand that in the clothing department, but when it comes to steel, rawhide, wood, plastic, leather, we seem to have this block in front of our eyes that says, oh, I had no idea. And then again, like you said, it's the not knowing what you don't know, but if, if you ever, ever sit side by side in exactly the same saddle, the only difference is male, female saddle, it's exactly the same if you put yourself into male or female underwear. You don't need to have a, a, a degree in biology or a degree in medical, right? It's just the feel. And riding is all about the feel. And if a lady sits in the male saddle, she will adapt. She, she maybe never have had the pleasure to ride in the female saddle, but she will adapt. And the second you block or you protect yourself, the communication, it's like Chinese telephone posts, it's like, it's not working. You know, you cannot communicate to Ukraine, but you're damaging your horse. And that's what I love, love, love about science and the law of nature. When there's actually books written by medical doctors about the long-term damage, it's there. You can't deny it. You can, I have a lot of people who say to me, but I have written all my life in a male saddle and I know exactly what you mean. Um, how can I adapt? You know, it's kind of like you have for all your life, always shoes that are horrible to narrow and your toes are bent to the side and a couple of your toes are on top of each other. You know, that doesn't mean you have to continue walking in these back shoes.
0: Maybe Correct. you only have
3: shoes where your foot has a chance to, to regain some kind of a life again. You know why I <laughs>
2: love talking to you? Thing. I love talking to you What's because that? this is saddle fit, not only for the horse, right? We always think saddle fit for the horse and we kind of ignore ourselves. And it's so important mm-hmm. to understand saddle fit for the rider and the horse. It's hand in hand. It's the same thing. If one isn't working, the other isn't going to work either. So you kind of have to do both at the same time.
3: So 100%, and this is what I love about the uh, Spanish riding school, you know, before even North America was discovered 400 years ago to this day. They still say, if the saddle doesn't fit the rider, the saddle never will fit the horse. And that's for 400 years preached to them in the Spanish riding school in Vienna. Anyway, I interrupted you. No, <laughs> you, I think it's great. So for people question.
2: that that ride many different horses in a day, then, do they bring their own saddle with them to ride all those horses, or do they have to ride in a saddle that fits the horse better? How does all that work?
3: So definitely you want to bring your own horse, a saddle, because... As I just said, it has to fit the rider first. And then if you are a trainer, you have a multiple horses, uh, it doesn't matter if you do English or Western. If if you say you have an average of 15 horses to ride a day, or let's say 11 horses a day, you see this a lot in the hunter-jumper world, you know, with three saddles, you can fit all horses. If you don't ride that many, always look at the mane. The mane of the horse is the key indicator If you have a left-handed horse or right-handed horse, if you are professional and you train horses, compare yourself as a professional seamstress to make beautiful clothes. And that lady will have scissors either right-handed scissors or left-handed scissors. If you get the scissors, what work will be both hands. They're not accurate. They're not exact. So if you have a left-handed scissors, but you're right-handed, that's very awkward now. So what I'm saying to you is, um, also written in many journals and, and, and veterinarian's book, um, majority of the horses have the mane to the right. Just like humans, the horse's appendix is on the right. If you ever see horses fight in nature, doesn't matter whatever you want to do with them, they always fight with the left. They guard their gassy, blowy side. We race racing world around the left vaulting only to the left, we mount on the left, not because there was a sword on the right or a gun, because the horse doesn't like you on the right. So there are several reasons why there is left-handed and right-handed. It's partly genetics, partly birth trauma, but all in all it has something to like with us humans, it's all replacement as well as uh, genetic in the brain. Yes, there are some women and men who are left-handed and some are ambidextrous and the same with horses. But seven out of 10 horses are, have the mane to the right, two mane to the left, and some of the horses have the mane split smack down the center. So these horses are absolutely symmetrical. So now back to your question, if you ride many horses, if you let's say have five horses to ride, check out the mane, if you have a couple of horses where the mane goes to the right and the left, you've got to have two. If all of them have mane to the right, like you, you only need one, and you go with a professional fit. A professional fit, saddle, is every rider should have a helmet on. We know that for safety reasons. And a good helmet, I'm not talking about the old helmets, what I had on 45 years ago. I'm talking about the helmets from today, who fit from front to back, left to right, and on the side. And the chin strap is not really tight. So a good helmet has these three components, and that's with a professional fit. The length is important, the width, and how the sidebars, Western or English, come down the side. So if you oversize that a little bit, then you can have different saddle pads for the different horses. So like the McClellan, it's an American saddle. It's the only saddle in the world, What is actually in the Hall of Fame, and to this day still being written that saddle was based on that feature very wide in the bar width in the, in the sidebars or the tree angle was pretty steep so that the soldier could fold the blanket certain ways to fit in multiple horses. And that's what we're bringing back so that we, A, have gender appropriate saddles, B, if you're a trainer, you get yourself a nice wide tree width with a steep angles, and then you have saddle pads. You can adjust the different various of horses.
2: I love I this main helmet. idea. I just love this. So I keep thinking, I have a, a one horse that has his mane definitely on the right, and he's definitely, like you said, more mm-hmm. right. And then I have another horse, though. He's not right down the middle. So the upper part of his mane mm-hmm. goes left, and the lower part of his mane goes right. So is he just all mixed up? <laughs>
3: No, no, it's very easy. This is what I understood and learned from different chiropractor, osteopaths, and and even farriers. You know, we all know the high heel and low heel syndrome. Most horses have a lower heel on the left, higher heel on the right. This has something to do with how they graze. So wherever the mane is on the shoulder. It's what is the key indicator here?
2: On the shoulder. If the horse's okay.
3: mane goes on, yes, if the main partially goes up on the left, an osteopath, chiropractor will tell you he's probably out on C4 or C3. And then it's when the mane flips over way down. So uh, I don't want to uh, step on anybody's toes, and I'm not one to analyze your horse <laughs> without even seeing it. And sure. even if I would see it, I don't have the qualification to make a statement like this, but that is most likely what uh, your chiropractor or osteopath will see.
2: Sure. Well, I just find it fascinating. And I know that there's eight myths of saddle fit that you talk about a lot in your saddle fit for life and things like that. But you cannot give Mm -hmm. them all away on the show today because you are going to be on our virtual (laughs) conference on October 30th. And I want people to come to our virtual conference listening today to be able to experience (laughs) that. So I'm going to do my little infomercial right now, Johan. For those that are listening, if you go ahead and say that you're with Horse Radio Network, Horses in the Morning, however you want to do that, we will give you the CHA discount for the virtual conference. Conference and it's under a hundred bucks, and it's going to be a whole day of talks like this. Some are going to be video in the arena with uh, riders up, others are going to be PowerPoint presentations. But we would love to have you on. So, I would love to know when I look for buying a saddle, either new or secondhand, what is important and what would be an absolute deal breaker?
3: Okay, the old soldiers' way, what they did, they went to the end of the main. And they're just marked either with uh, wet fingers where go against the hairline. So the hair stuck up a little bit where the end of the is, they're marked an eight inch line down. And then they looked three quarter from the front to the flank. And you got to do it when you can't do it at night. You got to have somewhat of light through the flank. The hair comes up and then goes forward. And if you ever see a horse, what is being rained on, you see how the water rains down sort of three quarters back of the bag. That's what the soldiers back then called rain line or ring of light. I will show this uh, slide on our um, conference in October, on the eight myths of saddle fit. So the soldier always looked at the end of the mane and the ring of light or the rain line. So that is the area where the horse can carry 350 pounds. 350 pounds, that's a lot of weight, if you only go walk for eight hours. As soon as you increase the speed, obviously the the pressure goes higher. So that's an absolutely deal breaker. If I have a Western saddle, the conchos have to fit between these two lines because the flare in the back and in the front hopefully stay away from the horse. If I have an English saddle, the dressage saddle stays behind. And on the jumping saddle, every English saddle has a D-ring, The D D-ring, is where the metal plate starts. So if you have an eventing saddle or jumping saddle or general purpose, that extra leather flap would goes forward and the panel doesn't hurt the horse. Second deal breaker would be if I flip my saddle upside down, I have to have four inches, a full fist, all the way from front to back, the space between the stuffed panels you have a Western saddle, you don't have to worry at all because I'm doing this now over 42 years and dissect and look everywhere I can for saddles I haven't seen. I asked, of course, can I look at your saddle? Can I take the panel off? I have yet to see a Western saddle who have the bars closer than four and a quarter of inch. So they are all the way clear for the spine. So the Western or the packing saddle or the army saddle never ever deviated from the spinal clearance. Unfortunately, many, many English saddles have forgotten. You cannot, you cannot sit on the spinal column of the horse, the spinal nerves or the nasty little muscle, what loosens all the strength of the spine, the multifidus muscle. And if you have the stuffed panels of an English saddle, a fist, distance, all the way front to back. That's great. What's a deal breaker? If it's less than a fit. So, I mean, there's more deal breakers, but I think those two are the most important.
2: Sure. I think that's wonderful. And I'll tell you, you know, you are so good at explaining. I was sitting here kind of visually imagining what you're talking about, and you're so good at explaining, and I just can't wait to see it on my computer as well, since we can't do in person this year, to be able to explain it even further at our virtual conference. So, Johan, thank Thank you so much for being on today. How can people find... I know you have different website properties. You obviously make saddles. You obviously have your nonprofit where you educate. And you also train and certify saddle fitters. Can you explain all three of those and um, how people can find out more about each of them?
3: Okay. So easy to find us is at saddleforwomen.com. So there you will see all kinds of different saddles. I'm so thrilled... Another project what comes down, we have finally managed to, to improve the life for the racehorses. Now, while I can't change the training method and what year they start training, but I definitely can uh, change the equipment and done this in Singapore, over in Asia, all over um, Europe as well, North America. We're bringing out an exercise racing saddle, what not only lowers the heart beat, but increases the stride and less heart, uh, nosebleeds. And that was, of course, all done with veterinarians and research papers. So what I just said has some data behind. But for the most racehorse owners, they're looking, do, do I have a horse that has less injuries? And does I have a chance more winning? And by just decrease the heart rate, increase the stride, it's kind of like somebody invented the rain tires for the first time for the formula one racing, right? Of course, everybody wants that because who wants their horse to be super, super sore. So saddle fit for You can find all our latest Western saddles, racing or English saddles. Mm-hmm. Then your other question was about our academy. That's saddle fit for life and saddle four, that's the number four, not written out four. And by Saddle for Women, it's spelled out F O R Saddle for Women dot com. I don't know. What's another question?
2: No, I know. <laughs> I want questions. to I've been wanting to for the longest time um, spend time you know I'm a master level certified instructor with certified horsemanship and we have many that hour. and I think all of us should also get the um, highest level that we possibly can within your organization as well because as riding instructors we get asked all the time what boots should I buy what helmet should I buy what saddle should I use how's my saddle fit what's going on right and we need to have kind of be jack of all trades right we need to understand a little bit about everything in order to be good at our trade so can you tell people a little bit more about how they can get certified? What the steps are for that, and how that works?
3: So again, through COVID, we had to speed everything up. We're working since the last three years, but we have now an online certification. And as a matter of fact, tomorrow um, I'm teaching a, a live class in Germany here from my home. But what we have, we have uh, trainers all over the world who do the practical. So you have several different ways. We have um, a course strictly geared for veterinarians. Then we have, uh, many of those courses are, uh, and videos are free on YouTube. And some of them depends how far you want. You just said, you, you went all the way up in your certification. And for us, um, the number one is the cyber police officer. Now that's a, uh, pretty big mouthful and uh, uh, nasty word. So together with the German riding school, the, the, this, um, they wanted something what they can give the trainers. So when the salesmen come in and they can now not train the horse, so they just lost income to train this lesson so they can have a good combination and help the students, like you said, while they're purchasing a saddle to to make sure they don't end up with the saddle now the riding lessons goes down the hill the customer got a new saddle loves it because it has some bling on or some fancy color or name and the customer leaves the the riding instructor because the riding doesn't go forward the instruction right uh, it's it, it's all falls goes downhill so it's a best interest for everybody mainly of course for the horse but we wanted to create something where the trainers benefit the most. So when you actually get the certification, you can not only help the student, but you help the salesperson, because most salespeople are not trainers. They don't have any, or some of them, they don't even write. So you can tell them what you see when they're trying to the sell. and you can actually have a great team approach, now rather than. Or you're just a trainer. You don't know anything about saddle fit, right? And saddle fitting has, in my understanding, more, more important than the saddle fit in movement and who has better than I, our horse moves comfortable, less pain than a trainer. And yes. more salespeople, they're not even right. They don't mm-hmm. understand. Oh, is this a trot or a walk or, 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 or what or, or stumbling is not normal. Sure. So stuff like that is what we have. We don't call it saddle police officer. We call it equine agonomist. And nice. comes out of the Greek word, which means measuring something three-dimensional. And then the highest one, if they say, what if I want to adjust my own saddle? And that's what we're bringing out end of this year. We have a therapist saddle and a trainer saddle. So you, just like the McClellan, have finally a saddle again. You can do the own saddle fitter. Fitting. So you can actually have nine spots how and where you can fit the saddle. Lots of moving parts, and that's why it's required a certification.
2: Right. Well, it is wonderful. And we so appreciate having you on today to share a little bit more with all the listeners about this wonderful topic. And can you um, go ahead and give the website that you would like people to go to one more time?
3: Okay. So it's called com and for the educational side is saddle fit for and, and the four, the four
2: as the number 4 for life. yeah
3: in the by saddle fit for life yeah and by saddle for women spell it out f o r for the confusing but
2: no oh, that's perfect to see well thank you C, right that's right. No, that's very good. And for those that want to come to the virtual conference, it's CHA.horse. We got that horse. It kept it real simple now. We don't have to do um, a big, long one anymore, which is nice. So we just appreciate you so much, Johan, being on today. And I love that you have an educational component as well as a sales component to what you do because education is key. And the more we educate people about um, saddle fit for not only the horse, but also the rider, the better partnerships we're all going to have with our animals. So thank you so much for being on today.
3: My pleasure. And thank you for having me.
2: Thank you. Bye bye.
3: Bye bye.
0: Well, there you go. That was uh, informative. What a great show today, covering a little two very different things.
2: Very different. But I'll tell you, anybody out there that's listening, You really want to get certified not only for the saddle fit that we were just talking about through um, Saddle Fit for Life, but also anybody that's ever thought about being either an equine facility manager with us, with our EFM program, or a riding instructor with us. Now's the time. Come on, people. We can do it. (laughs) And how do they do that? They just go to cha.horse and we have a lot of different certifications that they can see. There's a lot of prep that they can do online ahead of time. Um, And we are definitely starting to do our certifications again. We only have 10 or less at every one that we do. So in the COVID world, we can still operate and we're making sure to be very safe and abide by the CDC guidelines in every state and province where we're having our certifications. So just look up certifications by date or location and they'll come up for this fall and we have many already on board for next spring.
0: Uh, did you do the one at uh, uh, Flag is Up Farm yet at Monty Roberts Place?
2: No, that one's in September. So that one's coming up, uh, in the middle of September.
0: Yay! Well, I noticed Debbie. Yes. Uh, Debbie has a show. They have a show, Horsemanship Radio, here on the Horse Radio Network. Uh, and uh, I noticed that she was promoting that. That's so cool that you get to do it there because it is a really cool place. <laughs> oh
2: my gosh! And then they let me stay at their house. I mean, Monty and Pat are so wonderful. They treat me as a guest. We have dinner together. It is just it is amazing experience. I got to do it last year, and I'm so glad we get to do it again this year. What a what a Pleasure. And for those that don't
0: know, Monty Roberts Farm is about an hour and a half above Los Angeles in the hills there. And uh, when, when she says stay at the house, we got the opportunity to do that too. When she says stay at the house, you're on top of a hill overlooking the entire farm. It's so beautiful. And unbelievable. You're in a house that uh, Monty has his own kind of man, man cave. Um, and in that man cave are pictures of him and every celebrity you've ever known from the past. Uh, Ronald yes. Reagan, James Dean. The queen. the queen, multiple pictures of him and the queen. Yes. He has his saddles. Isn't his man cave really cool? Like every it guy's is really dream. Cool.
2: <laughs> and then every other room in the house has all of Pat's amazing sculpture. yes She is an amazing <laughs> sculpturist. It's just an amazing experience. And I'll tell you when you come, if anybody wants to come to that equine facility manager certification, they'll let you come up to the house. We did a little party in the man cave, just, you know, the eight people that come, it was just really great. So and they're then, very open and welcoming.
0: And then, uh, uh, Monty has his deer that are in his backyard that literally are in his backyard all the time.
2: Oh, and they're beautiful.
0: Uh, they just hang out like 10 feet from the house, <laughs> just yeah. hang out in the backyard. Yep. I got close. Uh, I, I was determined to touch one of the deer. So uh, Debbie told me how Monty does it, and I, did, I followed Monty's lead. And I, ADD Glenn, actually sat there for a couple hours, and I, they got within a foot of me wow i didn't get to touch them but they were right there within a foot of me so we got
2: a photo that's great.
0: oh i mean they were all around me it was so cool it was really cool uh but i don't have monty's touch and you know they come up and let him pet him <laughs> I, <don't>, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't get that close uh well that's co- so neat that you get to do that are you going out personally for that one
2: yes i'll be there and then Street jocelyn another one of our certifiers will come as well
0: very good that's so cool. So it's cha.horse everybody is where you can find it. Of course, you can find all the past episodes as we said at the beginning of the show. You go to horsesinthemorning.com, scroll down to the middle of the page. There's a CHA banner right there. Click on it and it brings up all the past episodes and you know, some of our you know, some of our episodes here on Horses in the Morning are very topical. And timely, but most of the episodes with the Certified Horsemanship Association, you go back and listen to one five years ago, and it still applies today. Um, That is true. Timeless
2: horsemanship.
0: Yeah, horsemanship is horsemanship, right? So you can go and listen to the back episodes, and you can do that right there on the website at horsesinthemorning.com. Thank you, Christy, for joining us. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Glenn. Until next time.
0: Well, and there was one other thing, too, that we wanted to say. Uh, July 31st, the last day of the CHA manual... And webinar specials. Thank you for reminding
2: me. It is. So July 31st, for anybody that's listening, it is going to be the last day. We're giving um, quite a big discount on our webinars. It's almost 50% off, which is really good. And they're all very educational. They're all listed on cha.horses. Click on the education tab and go to webinars. Same thing for our manuals, our composite manual of horsemanship, level one through four, that many of you have probably seen. And then our equine professional manual, the art of teaching, riding great discounts on that too, all until July 31st. And, The pricing is already on the website. There's no coupon code or anything. Just click and enjoy.
0: Very good. Well, that's it for today. Jamie will be back tomorrow. And then on Thursday, we have the sales episode with Kayla uh, and uh, Charlie from Down Under will be on on Thursday. And then some really bad ads again on Friday. Get your ads into Jennifer at horseradionetwork.com. That's it for today. Be safe, everybody.